Welcome back to The Word is Resistance, a podcast exploring what our sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, and thriving in the context of empire, violence, and repression, the times in which we are living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white people about our role in resistance, in showing up, in liberation? Hey everyone, my name is Blythe Barno, my pronouns are she, her, and I'm so glad to be with you today. I am the harm reduction manager for Faith and Public Life and the founder of an online ministry called Feminary. A few years ago, I was a more regular contributor to this podcast, so it's great to get to come back and do an episode. I'm recording today's episode from my home in central Ohio, which is occupied Hopewell land. This podcast is a project of Surge Faith and is particularly designed for white Christians, white Christian folks talking to other white Christian folks about race and white supremacy. We believe white Christians like us, like me, have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy, to speaking up, showing up, and disrupting white supremacy where we find it, including in our own Christian tradition. In these not-so-ordinary times, we are doing a series called Journeys to Freedom. This year has been full of so much grief and fear, but it has also felt full of hope and possibility. We have been led out of our old ways and into the wilderness, and what happens next is up to us. Today we are focusing on Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. So before we begin, let's just read through it. And scripture says, From the wilderness of sin, the whole congregation of the Israelites journeyed by stages as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. The people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, Why do you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, Go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will be standing there in front of you on the rock of Horeb. Strike the rock and the water will come out of it so that the people may drink. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and tested the Lord saying, Is the Lord among us or not? I don't know about you, but when I hear this scripture, I can relate. I can relate to the people. I can relate to Moses. I have found myself asking, well, you brought us here, now what? And I found myself thinking, I've worked hard to get us this far. What more do you want from me? In the scripture, I hear real fear. I hear uncertainty. I hear panic. 
I also hear something about blame, accountability, and work gone undone. I hear a reminder that freedom asks something of us. Sometimes it's faith, and sometimes it's the hard work of meeting our basic needs in a new way. I empathize with Moses. He has offered incredible leadership, but he's not in charge of, you know, water. I feel similarly for congregational pastors right now who've acted boldly to lead their communities through the pandemic, finding togetherness wherever they can and supporting the physical and spiritual health of their congregation, only to be met with questions and demands about when it will all be over. But this virus is airborne and pastors are not in charge of, you know, air. As Christians, we often forget that we are co-creating this world with God and that God is the big boss. God asks us to do our work so God can do God's. Between the pandemic and the recent uprisings, it's been easy to feel simultaneously despairing and deeply hopeful. Never before have we felt more alone. But never before have I felt more certain that our collective power could bring us closer to God's will for us. But that kind of freedom asks things of us. Sometimes they're big, like deepening our moral imagination and believing a new, freer world is possible. Sometimes they're small, like reading beyond headlines, registering to vote, or calling our legislators. In the spirit of our series, Journeys to Freedom, I thought I'd share about a freedom journey of my own. As many journeys go, it's a story of loss, struggle, and new perspective. It's a story of reclamation. It's a story of personal pain turned to collective struggle. Sixteen years ago, I lost one of my first big loves to an accidental overdose. The night he overdosed, somebody else was with him, and when he began to overdose, they left him. I can still remember the day of his funeral. It was a cold and gray day in Northeast Ohio. We sat quiet and still in that church, and the pastor's words echoed through us when he softly lamented just how easily the person I loved could have avoided going to hell. It echoed through us when he condemned us to the same fate. He told us that only the altar could save us, but we knew better. See, we'd been saving each other for years. Maybe our families kicked us out, our schools, our churches, but we remained. We loved each other through, through rehab relapse, poverty, and death. And what that pastor did that day, it was not the work of the gospel. Shame can never be the work of the gospel because it is death-dealing and not life-giving. Easter may be far from us on the calendar, but it's my favorite holiday and the foundation of my faith. I love it because it reminds me to honor and celebrate the simple and profound ways that people resurrect their lives every day. People change. They come back from the brink. They strive to bring their communities back to life. Easter reminds us that even when our families, our communities, and yes, sometimes our churches, seal the tomb and pronounce us dead to them, we can still rise. 
Every day, people defy the destructive forces of the world by choosing dignity, grace, and connection. It's so very worthy of our celebration. And I think it's what that pastor forgot that day, what too many of us have forgotten, that Christians are called to be an Easter people, a resurrection people. As longtime harm reductionist Marilyn Reyes says, we are meant to speak life into people, not death. When I think of resurrection, I think of another friend of mine. We had plans one day, but he never showed up. A week later, he called me and told me that he'd overdosed that day. He'd died. He'd been sober for a few months and decided to use one more time. And because his tolerance was low, it killed him. Luckily, his mom came home unexpectedly, and he was able to be revived with naloxone. But he'd been dead. And now he's alive. Real life resurrection. Naloxone, which is also sometimes called Narcan, is a medication that blocks the effects of opiates like Oxycontin, heroin, fentanyl, and carfentanil. Its ability to block opiates means that it can be used to stop or reverse an opiate overdose. It saves lives. In 2019, about 72,000 people died of a fatal overdose in this country. About 4,000 of those people were from my home state of Ohio. Unfortunately, these numbers are only growing. In fact, in the county I live in, the coroner says overdose fatalities have increased about 55% during the first quarter of 2020 alone. Many are quick to attribute the increase solely to the pandemic, but we know it's more than that. What's worse is that we know some of these deaths, a lot of these deaths, were preventable a grief that is sometimes too heavy to bear. Harm reduction is a set of practical strategies and ideas aimed at minimizing the negative health, social, and legal impacts associated with drug use and drug laws. It focuses on supporting holistic positive change and on supporting people without judgment, coercion, discrimination, or without requiring that they stop using drugs as a precondition of our support. Simply put, it's meeting people where they're at and supporting them and keeping themselves as safe, healthy, and connected as possible without the condition of their sobriety. Harm reduction redefines recovery as any positive change because we understand that change is a process so if you use a little less, that's an act of recovery. If you use sterile equipment, that's an act of recovery. If you wait to pick up until after the rent is paid, that's an act of recovery. And if you are completely abstinent, that's also an act of recovery. Theologically put, it's the recognition of what is divine in yourself and others. It's an expression of the unconditional love of God, the love of neighbor, the work of the gospel. I will confess that I did not come to this movement easily, by which I mean both the movement that is the gospel and the movement that is harm reduction. 
In fact, I kind of came kicking and screaming, sometimes literally screaming. About 10 years ago, I was asked by my mentor to prepare a workshop on harm reduction for the domestic violence agency we used to work for. I told her very clearly that she had the wrong girl. I knew it was my job to lead trainings, but I told her that it was really unlikely that I'd be able to do the topic any justice. I just didn't believe in it. But the truth is, I was angry, which is really to say, I was scared. I didn't want drugs anywhere near people I cared about because I wanted the people I love to live. And I didn't want drugs anywhere near me because drugs and danger had often been connected in my life. Drugs meant the danger of losing my housing, my food, my physical safety. But just as pressing, drugs meant grief, worry, loss. And I was already so tired. So as a good mentor does, she nodded, understood where I was coming from, and told me to do it anyway. She knew the baggage I was carrying, but she also knew that I deserved to be free of it. She understood what was keeping me from compassion, but she also knew that our clients deserved better. So I read up, and I did the presentation the best I could, and it was not great. But it did lead me to my ministry. Harm reduction often talks about the importance of meeting people where they're at, but making sure you don't leave them there. I'm a better person and a better minister today because my mentor did just that for me. That presentation was a first step in rethinking everything I knew about drugs and the people who use them. It was a first step in one of my journeys to freedom. Last year across the country, grassroots harm reduction advocates distributed over a million doses of naloxone. Collectively, they've helped save countless lives. And those lives were not saved by paramedics or police or health departments. They were saved by people who use drugs. When given, when given easy access to naloxone, the vast majority of overdose reversals are completed by people who use drugs because they are the true first responders to this crisis. Community naloxone distribution in the U.S. was started in the 90s by a man named Dan Big. He ran the Chicago Recovery Alliance alongside other people who use drugs. And he saw no reason why this medication that had been used in the hospital since the 70s could not also be used in the community. His work, which I would call a ministry, is profound and far-reaching. This life-saving work that we often associate with police or health departments was actually developed first by people who use drugs. That's important. Naloxone distribution, fentanyl testing strips, syringe access. These are all interventions that were created by people who use drugs in order to save and improve one another's lives. Because contrary to what we're often told, people who use drugs value their lives and the lives of their community. As Christians, we know something about how outcasts can save us. 
about how outcasts can change the world. But more than that, we know that God doesn't make outcasts. We do. And that to be a Christian means to reject any system that tells us that some of God's children are less worthy of love, community, and connection. The founders of harm reduction understood that to truly reduce harm, we must address the systemic harms that are trickling down into individual lives. We must shift power and resources to those who are most in need and who know the most from lived experience. People who use drugs are the leaders of our work to end overdose. So we ought not villainize, but instead listen and learn from them. After all, it sounds a lot like the gospel to me. As the church, we must recognize that we had a role in creating this crisis, and so we have a role in ending it too. People who use drugs have been doing the gospel work that the church has been avoiding. They've been preaching resurrection, and we're missing it. Worse than that, often we're making it harder. We make it harder when we attach shame, stigma, and sin to drug use. We make it harder when we treat people who use drugs like the other instead of as a fellow child of God. We make it harder when we allow people to wield the word addict like a weapon, essentializing someone down to just one part of who they are, defining them by their struggle, and marking them as separate. As people of faith, we must confront and combat the shame, stigma, and judgment in our own hearts, pulpits, and congregations. But we must also lobby legislators for the common sense policies we need to save our communities, like syringe access and Good Samaritan policies locally and the BREATHE Act federally. We must push back against efforts to further criminalize people who use and sell drugs, which too often is simply code for people of color and poor people. We must take bold moral action and support efforts to defund the police. Growing up in a white working class town in Northeast Ohio, I watched as my friends feverishly worked to obtain the American dream, a dream that felt promised to us, even if not consciously, largely because we were white. As white people, we were told that this country works for us. So when we could not pull ourselves out of the struggle and poverty that shaped our day to day, we did not think that the system failed us. We thought we failed ourselves. And I watched as that feeling of failure, which is rooted in white supremacy, tricked people I love into believing that they were unworthy, a pain that they sought to ease with substance use, which without access to harm reduction information, ultimately claimed many of their lives. We live in a time where white youth are being leveraged against communities of color, just as white women were in the civil rights era. A desire to protect the virtue, purity, and abstinence of youth is fueling the violent policing and mass incarceration of people of color, as well as dehumanizing immigration policy at our borders. The subtext always being that people of color are responsible for the production and sale of drugs and are therefore a threat to innocent white children. Some of us might be familiar with the war on drugs, 
Maybe it conjures up images of eggs and frying pans or the phrase, just say no. What most of us don't know is that the war on drugs dates back to the 1930s and beyond and began as a racist attack on black and immigrant communities. The first anti-opium laws in the 1870s were an attack on Chinese migrants after white men feared losing jobs on the railroad. Black men in the South were the target of the first anti-cocaine laws in the early 1900s, and Mexican migrants and Mexican-Americans were the target of the first anti-marijuana laws in the 1910s and 20s. In fact, that's why we use the Spanish word marijuana in this country instead of cannabis, because it supported the criminalization of Mexican migrants as drug dealers and criminals. We can hear these same attacks continue today when Donald Trump speaks about law and order or demands we defend our borders. The original architect of the war on drugs was a man by the name of Harry Anslinger. He was the first commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics and a widely known white supremacist. Targeting communities of color, especially black Americans with drug charges and harassment was part of Anslinger's strategy to justify the existence and budget of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. In fact, Anslinger targeted famous singer Billie Holiday for her song Strange Fruit, which protested the lynching of Black Americans. Anslinger demanded she stop performing the song, and when she refused, he retaliated by regularly arresting her on drug charges and placing her under surveillance for decades, even going so far as raiding her hospital room and handcuffing her to the hospital bed as she lay dying. To be clear, Billie Holiday was not put under surveillance because her drug use was a threat, but because she was Black and dared to resist white supremacy. The racist drug war continues to target Black communities today. We can see it in the murder of Breonna Taylor, who was killed in her bed by police who were executing a no-knock warrant on suspected drug charges. We can see it when the police officer who murdered George Floyd looked casually around and said, this is why you don't do drugs, kids. In 1971, President Nixon formally declared the war on drugs. John Ehrlichman, one of Nixon's top advisors, recently offered a candid reflection on the foundations of this so-called war. He said, The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and Black people. You understand what I'm saying. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or Black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and Blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did, he concluded. Criminalization, racism, and white supremacy are the foundations of our drug policy. And every year it costs Americans, particularly Black Americans, their lives and their freedom. I see it here in Ohio. White people are more likely to sell drugs, and all races use drugs at similar rates. 
but the highest increase of overdose deaths in Ohio are among Black men, and 43% of incarcerated Ohioans are Black. Racism and white supremacy fuels our understanding of drug use, which fuels policing, which fuels mass incarceration, which fuels overdose death. When the movement for Black lives demands that we defund police, they are asking, in part, for an end to this war, a war whose purpose and budget was grown out of anti-Blackness, coercion, and violence. The movement for Black lives is a harm reduction movement. After all, like we said, harm reduction is about more than reducing risk. As Monique Tula, executive director of the National Harm Reduction Coalition says, Harm reduction is a movement, one that shifts resources and power to the people who are most vulnerable to structural violence. As people of faith, we know that budgets are moral documents. And when huge portions of our budgets are dedicated to policing, we are saying that God values systems of punishment and surveillance over systems of care and connection. I'm part of the United Church of Christ, and in the UCC, we commit to being in covenant with one another and with the world, which means we commit to caring for one another and remaining in right relationship. But violent policing ruptures that covenant, both by harming us and our siblings in Christ, but also by leaving us with a false impression that the hurt and harm in our communities is no longer our responsibility but instead can just be handled by calling the police. Overinvestment in policing only allows our suspicion and fear of one another to grow. Instead, the movement for Black Lives is asking us to deepen our moral imagination and ask what God really wants for us. Does God want no-knock warrants? Or does God want neighborhoods made safe by abundance, made safe through enough food to eat, enough homes in which to sleep, enough money for rent and leisure, enough helping hands. The Movement for Black Lives is asking us to defund the police and invest in Black communities so that we can truly make our budgets match our morals, because we know that God wants all of us to have life and have it abundantly. The Movement for Black Lives is reminding us that when we reject fear and white supremacy, We all have enough. The movement for Black lives is guiding us towards the promised land. And instead of offering our thanks and our work, too often we are simply digging our heels in, folding our arms, and saying, okay, defunding the police may be all well and good, but now what? We are given toolkits, policy briefs, and resources that offer detailed responses to our questions, but we don't read them. Instead of meeting the movement with gratitude, we meet it with defiance. We we demand certainty from leaders who are not in charge of the elements. We are being asked to participate in the co-creation of our collective freedom, and yet many of us are still sitting on the sidelines screaming, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children? The movement for Black Lives is filling the void of leadership in our country. For this, many are calling the movement dangerous. For this, many are trying to cast them as political outcasts. 
But as Christians, we know something about how outcasts can save us, about how outcasts can change the world. Some of you maybe are thinking, wait, I I thought we were talking about your story, your journey to freedom. Let me assure you we are. After all, when my love began to overdose in a hotel room 16 years ago, it was racist drug policy that kept the person who was with him from calling for help, afraid that they would both be incarcerated instead of supported. There was no good Samaritan law to protect them. They didn't even know that naloxone existed. The person who was with them was forced to choose between my love's life and their freedom. It's an impossible choice that we ask people across this country to make every day. That day they chose freedom, and I can no longer blame them for it. Instead, my heart aches because they too were a friend of mine, and ten years later they also died of an overdose. And I have to imagine the weight of that choice contributed to their death as well. A legacy of anti-blackness and anti-immigrant policy left 72,000 people to die a preventable death last year. When we confront the white supremacy and racism our drug policy was founded in, we, began, we can begin to see that the harm caused by drug use is often, not always, but often harm that is caused by criminalization. Which is to say that we begin to see how a system has failed us and not a person, not ourselves. By confronting white supremacy, we are offered the chance to move past blame and self-protection. I spent 10 years hating the person who left my love to die. But in better understanding the conditions of that choice, I got my friend back. We talk often about what it costs us to confront white supremacy, but we get so much more than we lose. It returns people we love to us. It returns us to ourselves. The movement for black lives, the harm reduction movement, these are Easter movements, striving to bring communities back to life. And as Christians, we are called to be an Easter people, a resurrection people. Both these movements require the tough work of reclaiming dignity. Both require us to engage our own healing. They ask us to have a systemic understanding of our deeply personal pain. They ask us to love ourselves and each other more deeply. It is truly the toughest form of love because it requires the transformation of all of us. It's messy and so very worth it. May we remember that the power of resurrection lives within us, in our hearts, in our hands. We need only choose it. We need only claim our legacy as an Easter people in this Good Friday world. This week, I'm asking you to do three things. First, 
is to read up on the history of the drug war. The Drug Policy Alliance is a great organization to look to for resources. And I'll also link a resource in our show notes. Second is to sit down and read the policy brief for the Breathe Act. I'll also link that in our show notes. And third, and this one might feel big, but I assure you it's a small ask. I'm asking you to call your representatives and your senators and ask them to sign on as a co-sponsor of the Breathe Act. Now, don't worry. You won't have to talk to an actual human. Those lines are almost always going straight to voicemail. I know some of the introverts among us get worried about that. It's time for us to stop yelling into the void. It's time for us to stop blaming those leading us to the promised land for our own fear and uncertainty. It's time to pick up the tools we have and get to work. It's time to take a few concrete steps on our journey to freedom. Thank you for joining us today and thank you for getting to work. Let us know what you think about today's episode by commenting on our SoundCloud or Facebook pages. As always, you can find a transcript of this week's podcast, including links to resources and copyright information on our website. The music you heard is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding. We are building up a new world. The group you hear singing is No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We're deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for allowing us to use this song for the podcast. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org. And be sure to tune in next week when we'll have a brand new episode. Until then, may you go forward in the peace and power of a God who loves us for all that we are and in spite of nothing. The same God that calls us to the work of justice. Amen. Yeah.